Uh, you can turn over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. You know, I was praying about breaking away from this, and then I reread verse 3 and 4, and I thought, you know, this kind of fits, so we're just going to forge ahead in our study of 1 Corinthians and apply it to Christmas. So this morning, I want to speak to you about Thanksgiving at Christmas time. You know, we split up our holidays so much nowadays, even at uh, Halloween, they're preparing for Christmas in the malls. If you go around, they have all the Christmas stuff set up, and they just kind of skip over Thanksgiving, and they go right to where the moneymaker money maker is Christmas time, right? We all have lots to do at Christmas time. So I thought we would just once again revisit Paul's words to the church at Corinth there. And I want to just read for us verses 3 and 4 this morning. And then uh, just we're going to kind of have a, a lighthearted message this morning. But we're going to go over uh, the text here and uh, apply it hopefully to your hearts this morning. So let me read verses 3 and 4 for you out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. I asked the question as I was studying this past week of why Christ came. Why did Jesus have to come? Why did he have to be born? Why did he have to take on human flesh? Couldn't have God worked out a different way? Well, God's God, I'm sure he could have, but he didn't. He said, no, I'm going to do it this way. And I've had a lot of Christians even ask me, well, why do you think Jesus had to be born in human flesh? And a lot of people say, well, so he could provide an example for us. That's good. Uh, So he could walk in our footsteps, so he could understand what we would go through. Well, that kind of indicates that God has to learn something, right? That somehow, unless he came down here in the flesh, he wouldn't understand our problems. And we all know that God can't learn anything because he knows everything. So that one kind of falls short. But really, the reason, the true reason, that Jesus had to come down and take on flesh incarnate was simply this. Ask yourself this question. Can God die? Is it possible for God, the eternal God, to die? The question is no. Therefore, Jesus had to be born as a man of a virgin, even though he was perfect in every way. He had to have human flesh so that he could go to the cross and take upon himself all the sins of all those who would ever put their faith and trust in Christ for their salvation and they secure their salvation through his sacrifice on the cross. If he didn't do that, if he didn't take on human flesh, he couldn't have died. So that's the main reason. And so I'm thinking, well, okay, this really speaks to what Paul is explaining here in verses 3 and 4. Now, we've spent a lot of time, I think nine messages in the first two or three verses here of 1 Corinthians. And I appreciate your your patience. But just remember, Paul is speaking, he's addressing the church at Corinth, which was a horrendous church. (laughs) It was filled with sin, to be honest with you. But he still addresses them as saints. He calls them saints in verses 1 and 2. Now, we're not talking about some dead saint on a wall that you pray to, as they do in some churches. We're talking about living saints. And not just a few of them were saintly, 
all of those who put their faith and trust in Christ were saints. They were classified as saints. Paul uses that word over 66 times in his letter, so it was a a special word to him. And I think the major thrust of 1 Corinthians is really an exhortation for pure and godly living. He wants us to be sanctified. He wants us to be like his son. That's why we're saved. That's the whole purpose of us living here on earth after we're saved, is that process of sanctification. And so he gives us this indicative that you are saints in verses 1 and 2, and then following in the rest of the chapter, he says, based on that, because you are saints, you ought to act this way. Paul does that all the time. We're reminded in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but man, I hang my hat on that every night. That helps me sleep at night. To realize that, you know what, my salvation is not left up to me. When I mess up and fall short, Christ is saying, hey, This is going to be perfected in you, whether you like it or not. It's going to happen. And the supreme purpose of those who are in Christ, the Bible says, is that we should be like Christ in every way. That we should have his mind, it says. That we should have his attitude. That we should even possess his way of thinking and living. Well, we celebrate the birth of Christ at Christmas time, and I'm here to tell you, that one of the reasons that we, we do that is not because it's biblical to, to, to celebrate it. There's no mandate in Scripture that says you should celebrate the birth of Christ. It doesn't tell us that. As a matter of fact, it tells us to celebrate what? His death. Remember, Christ says, remember this. Do this in remembrance of me. That's why we celebrate communion. But here we're celebrating the birth of Christ. And it's because of the birth of Christ that we have tapped into the grace of God. If it wasn't for the birth of Christ, we wouldn't know the grace of God. Because Christ would never have gone to the cross to die for our sins. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6 says, And by this we know that we have come to know him. Have you ever doubted your salvation? I mean, we all do once in a while, right? Some people more than others, but, you know, occasionally we doubt our salvation. He says, you know what, if you're doubting your salvation, here's how you know that you can know that you know Christ. If we keep his commandments, if we keep his commandments, if we're obedient to Christ. Verse 4 says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, John doesn't doesn't use any... uh, politically correct words here. He says, you're a liar. That's what he calls you. He says, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I mean, doesn't that make sense? Christ is born of a virgin. He lives 30-some odd years here on earth, perfect life lays us down an example, and now God says, you know what? It's real easy. Just follow the example. 
I've given you everything that you need in Christ to do that. I've given you the Spirit. That's a big one, right? We got the Holy Spirit residing within us, the very power that enabled Christ while he was here, the very power that, that, that did all those wonderful things throughout Scripture. It resides within us. He's given us his word to provide us instruction. Somebody said the Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. We need to get that. We need to understand that. Because time is running short. The Lord will return. And he's also given us the church, a community of fellow believers who know Christ and are willing to fellowship together and build a community together. Some are big, some are small. It doesn't matter. But I pray that they're authentic. I pray that our relationships are transparent with each other. That's why I always say the only difference between the person standing behind this pulpit and the, the people who are listening to them preach is they're facing two different directions. That's the only difference. Just because you're elevated up here doesn't make you any more holy. Trust me. Ask my wife when she gets back. By the way, her trip to Hawaii went fine. She spoke to the women's group yesterday, a group of, I think, 80 to 100 women, and um, appreciate all your prayers. Uh, she, she told me it couldn't have gone better, and they were really, really blessed with her there, and she was blessed to be there. And um, I can't say I was blessed that she was there, though, <laughs> with the grandkids and my daughter and son-in-law. That was kind of miserable. It was a miserable week, actually, but... That's okay. I'll get through it. You don't have to feel sorry for me. She's coming back on Tuesday, so uh, just in case you're wondering, she is coming back. But see, Jesus laid down this example for us to follow. And, you know, it's amazing how when Paul began this chapter, the very first chapter, he calls these people who fell short in so many ways. When we get into this book, you're going to find things in this book that you'd never think you would find in a church. You're going to find sexual immorality. You're going to find drunkenness. All kinds of crazy stuff going on here. And yet, Paul is reminding them, you know what? If you are in Christ, you need to walk like Christ. Remember what Jesus told the woman at the well who was taken in adultery. His parting words in John 8, 11 were, from now on, sin no more. Remember that? And you're thinking, wow, if somebody told me that, could I do that? Um, I asked a Hindu woman on the plane that sat next to me on the way over, because my wife didn't make the flight, so she was there by providence anyway. That's what I want to believe. And so um, she was sitting there. She was an older Indian woman, and I began to dialogue with her, and she told me how she used to uh, ask what she did. And she said, she travels around the world, and she teaches people table tennis instruction. She was actually the world champion at one point from India of ping pong. Really weird, right? I mean, just a weird conversation we had. So then, you know, I said, well, are you Hindu, being from India? Oh, yeah, I'm Hindu. But all religions are good. All religions are good. And I said, all right. Um, you mind if I ask you some questions? She said, oh, no, not at all. And so I started asking. I said, well, what do you think about Jesus? Oh, he's a wonderful teacher. We, you know, he's, he's a good, good person. I said, all right. 
I said, what happens in your religion when you sin? She just kind of looked at me and goes, what do you mean? I go, well, you do wrong things. We call it sin. Oh, yeah, sin. I know what sin is. Like if you lie or you steal. I go, yeah. And she, I go, what happens when you do that? And she kind of looked at me and puzzled look. I said, well, I mean, does your God or gods <laughs> get angry? Well, yeah, yeah. I said, so is there any recourse? And she used this word. She goes, well, we have to repent. That's the word she literally used. And I said, wow, that's a very biblical word. Do you know what that means? Well, it means you don't do it again. And I said, well, okay. I said, so have you ever sinned? Oh, yeah, many times. I said, so what do you do to appease your God? Well, I repent. So does that mean if you told a lie, you never tell any more lies at all, ever? Well, no. <laughs> I said, so then what happens? Do you have anything like forgiveness? And she just kind of looked at me with this puzzled look on her face. And I said, see, in Christianity, we believe that there's forgiveness, that there's one who paid the debt for our sins, that we don't have to earn it ourselves. And she goes, that's, that's very interesting. And I said, you know, as a matter of fact, can, do you mind if I share something with you out of John 14, verse 6? Jesus said this. I just want to read this. Because you think Jesus is a good guy, right? Oh, yeah, he's a wonderful teacher. Okay. So I read to John 14, 6, right? Point it in my Bible. And I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. She looks, that's interesting. I said, so it's kind of exclusory. It kind of cuts out all the other religions, doesn't it? That's what Jesus was saying there. He says, I am the only way to the Father. I said, by the way, what do you think of Jesus now? And she just kind of grins. She goes, I'll have to study that. I'll have to look into that. You know. But my point was simply this. For her to think that just because she repents, she's never going to do anything again is a silly notion. Just like when Jesus told the woman caught in adultery, from now on, go and sin no more. I mean, he's telling a woman who has been a prostitute her whole life. She was caught in the very act of adultery, the Bible says. And he's saying, just don't do it anymore. That doesn't sound like biblical advice. That, that seems kind of hard, hard to understand. I mean, you would think we know that some point in this woman's interaction with Christ, I believe she was saved. I believe for the first time in her life, she possessed the power of the Holy Spirit to actually go and do what Jesus commanded her to do. Go and sin no more. See, Jesus' instructions to cease sinning given to anyone but a believer would have been a mockery. You can't tell your unbelieving friends, you know, just stop sinning. They can't do that. They can't just stop sinning. It's within their nature, just like it's within our nature. But as believers, for the first time, what do we have? We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the power of God's Word that restrains us, that offers us that restraint. For the first time in our lives, we can say no to sin and yes to the Savior. A lot of times, we need to remember that our lost friends and relatives don't just need to come to church. They need to come to Christ they need to be saved. And we need to be faithful to give them the gospel. The gospel is the, the good news, the bad news, the whole thing. You know, don't go to your friends and say, oh, do you know that Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life? Well, that's not the gospel, my friends. The gospel is, do you understand that your sin has removed you from God? You have a broken relationship with God. 
And you need reconciliation. You need to be brought back in a proper relationship with your creator. And the only way you can do that is to go through his son who paid the price for your sin and for all those who would trust in him on Calvary. He's the only way. And so we need to be reminded that as saints, we are called to live up to that level of living. We are called to live as saints, not just call ourselves saints, but actually live there. Now, that doesn't mean we're perfect. But when we fall, when we falter, when we sin, what does the Bible say? We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Confession just means saying the same thing that God says about your sin. You don't try to hide it. You don't try to excuse it. You know, it's funny. Sometimes, you know, my wife and I get in a, in a healthy discussion, I call them, you know. I used to call them arguments, but now I just call them healthy discussions. And usually it's me that kind of loses it in the end, you know. My anger gets crazy or whatever. And so, you know, I get frustrated. Maybe I say some things I shouldn't have said or whatever. And, and I just remember, you know, telling her early on in our relationship, that's just the way I am. <laughs> that's, I'm making excuses for my sin. You know, well, you're not communicating with me. Well, that's just the way I am. And finally, we went to a counselor early on in our marriage, and we realized, you know what? The counselor said, yeah, that's the way you are, but that's not the way you should be. (laughs) You need to change, pal. And that's the first time anybody ever told me that. And I thought, wow, he's right. The way I'm acting is not becoming of the Lord. So I need to change. Well, how can I change? The only way I can change is through the power of God's spirit and the power of God's word. We can't do it on our own is is the point. That's why Christ came. And so you look here in verse 3. That was all introduction, by the way. Verse 3, this is a greeting, all right? And we kind of went over this before, so we're going to go over this kind of lightly. But he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I think, first of all, at Christmas time, we need to be thankful for the fruits of sainthood. The fruits of sainthood. And you see them there. The fruits of sainthood are very simply placed there. Grace and peace. We need to remember, we need to remind ourselves what grace is. Grace, charis, is a gift. It's, it's a favor. It's not something that's owed to you. It's something that's given to you freely. And you notice the construction here, in, in the, in, even in the English, it says grace to you and peace. And I don't care what book you look at in, in Paul, whenever he gives a greeting this way, it's always grace, then peace. Why is that? Because you cannot know the peace of God until you've tasted of the grace of God. It's that simple. There's no way you can understand what peace is, that, that harmony, the opposite of war and dissension. You know, we can't know that outside of touching the grace of God. We just really can't even understand it. That peace in verse 7 of chapter 4 of Philippians, he says, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Can you imagine what that, that's just like an incredible construction in the original language. It means you can't even comprehend this. It surpasses all understanding. 
That's the kind of peace that will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I want that kind of peace when I get the bad news from the doctor. (laughs) This may be not the report I want to hear. Or I get the phone call from maybe a relative back east, maybe somebody's passed away. Or maybe a family struggling with their children or whatever it might be. See, that kind of peace can step right into your life at that time because you've tasted of the grace of God. That kind of peace, that word shalom, really, it's a very common greeting for Jews in our society even today to use. But he says it's the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. And notice in Philippians it says it will guard your hearts and your minds. See, we need to make sure that our minds and our hearts are guarded And what a a wonderful thing to guard them with is is the peace of God. Now, even though Jews use that as a a common greeting today, it's only believers that can have that kind of peace. It's only those who have trusted in Christ. In John chapter 14, verse 27 and 28, here's what Jesus says about peace. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Then he says this, Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do you know that the world, do you understand the world has a peace that it's trying to give you? It's trying to give it to you each and every day. I mean, all you got to do is sit down and watch a a football game or a, a program on TV. Pretty soon a commercial pops up. What are they trying to do? They're trying to give you peace. They're saying, if you just buy this dietary supplement pill, man, you're going to have peace with your weight struggles. Or or maybe, you know, you can get this credit card and, oh, you're going to really have peace then. Yeah, right. Or maybe if you, you just buy this car or buy this, then you'll have peace. Or maybe you need this dating website or this to give you peace in your, your, in your singleness, you know. It's just crazy. But the world is attempting to give us peace. And what Jesus is saying is, my peace is not of the world. It's something you could not even understand. He says, not as the world gives do I give to you. Then he says this in verse 28, let, your hearts, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. When are you fearful in life? Stop and think of the moments that you have been fearful. I remember one time when we were traveling across the country. My brother, I was just, I think, 10 or 12 maybe. And uh, my sisters, my sister Suellen, Mary, and my brother Paul. He's a pastor now, and he's since repented of this, but... I remember we got to the Badlands in South Dakota. And if you've ever been to the Badlands, you know, they have Mount Rushmore, all that stuff. And it's very precarious. You know, they, got, they have rails there. But you can walk right out and go, whoa, and you look down. It's like you're looking down the Grand Canyon. It goes forever. And I was kind of scared of heights. And I remember my brother saying, hey, Stevie, come here. And he literally grabbed me by my arms. And he goes, what do you think of this? I thought I was going to die. I had no peace. I mean, it's a wonder I didn't wet my pants. Literally. 
And then he just kind of, oh, come on, I'm just kidding. You know, I started to cry. He put me back on here. And I, I went down to the ground. I, could, I was so freaked out. And I'm crawling back to the car. Looks like an idiot. Here's a little 10, 12-year-old kid thinking, man, what's, I had no peace. Why? Because I was filled with fear. See, Jesus says this kind of peace drives away that fear. When you have the peace of God because you've tasted of the grace of God, you don't need to know that kind of fear. He says, don't be afraid. He says, I'm going away and I'll come, come back for you. You know, the one thing that, that Christ promises that he will do is return for us. And there's something about that. That Yeah, he came the first time at Christmas time, born in a lowly manger of virgin, peasant lady, woman. But you know what? He's coming back. And, and we need to look forward to that. Well, we see here some benefits of sainthood in verses 4 to 9. We're not going to get through all this today, obviously. But there's different dimensions to these benefits, just so you know. There's the past. There's the moment we came to Christ. Remember when you first came to Christ, when you repented of your sins and you trusted Christ and you were filled with the Spirit? And man, you, you just thought, wow, what just happened? That burden of sin was lifted off your shoulders. That's the past. That's when you tasted of that grace that I'm talking about, that favor of God stepped into your life. That's taken care of. That's done. Once you come to Christ, please understand, once you are in Christ Jesus, once you've repented of your sins and you've trusted in the cross for your salvation, there's nothing that can undo that. The Bible says there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. None. Not even a little bit. As I said a couple weeks ago, a good illustration of our salvation and the security we have is Noah in the ark. Remember what I said? In the ark, Noah may have stumbled. (laughs) He may have fallen in the ark. Maybe he fell off a ladder or something, but he didn't fall out of the ark. See, we are secure in Christ because of the grace of God. And then the present aspect of this sainthood is that this sanctification process that we work out as as our lives live in him each and every day. The process of sanctification, that once we're saved, then God begins to work in us, to form us, to fashion us, to become more like his son. And you know what? He gives us gifts. He gives us gifts like the spirit, the word, the church. He gives us spiritual gifts that each of us can possess and use for his glory. He provides for that. He doesn't just save us and then say, okay, well, I'll see you later (laughs) in a couple thousand years. You're on your own, pal. He doesn't do that. He says, no, I'm going to equip you. I'm going to give you everything you need to live a life that is honoring to me. And then the future aspect of our sainthood is explained when we go to be in heaven with him. And that's a guarantee. We're assured of that. It's not if, maybe, perhaps. It's, we know it's going to happen. Our past is already taken care of. Our present is provided for. And our future is assured of. Well, let's look at 
the past benefits of this grace that we've been talking about. Let's be thankful for the fruits of uh, sainthood, but also the benefits of sainthood. The first benefit here is the grace of salvation. Look at what he says in verses 4 and then also in verse 6. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That's speaking of our salvation. Verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So he points out to us very clearly that the first benefit of a saint is the benefit of be partakers, being partakers of the grace of salvation. What's interesting in the language here, when it says that which was given and also was confirmed, that's in what they call the aorist tense in the Greek. And what that means is a certain completed action happened back here, but it has ongoing ramifications. Okay? So it just continues. And at a moment, the person trusts in Christ as their Savior. He receives the grace of God. And the testimony of Christ is confirmed in you at that time. So Paul is clearly grateful here. He says, I thank my God always concerning you. I give thanks to my God always for you. Why? Because they've received the grace of salvation. See, his passion was one of seeing people, men, women, children, saved. That's what his passion was. His joy was greatest when people were converted to Christ. The Bible says he that wins souls is wise. Uh, You know, it's a smart thing to share the gospel with those who have yet to come to Christ. Because it's that glorious gospel that will transform their lives. His passion was to see people redeemed. And when that happened, he didn't pat himself on the back, by the way. He wasn't walking around going, yeah, I saved five today. Oh, tomorrow I'm going to go for ten. You know, there are some churches like that, unfortunately. You know, they go out and they do their little evangelism thing, and they come back and they share their war stories, and they actually pin little buttons on them how many people they saved. It's ridiculous. That's not honoring to the Lord at all. The moment we think that our salvation has anything to do with us, we got a problem. Because the last time I checked, the Bible doesn't talk about a man-centered salvation. It talks about a God-centered salvation. And so that word grace, he uses it here once again in verse 4, because the grace of God, that favor of God. Do you understand if it wasn't for the favor of God, we would be utterly lost in our sin? There's nothing that we could do to earn it. It's the idea of somebody giving you something and you never even, first of all, maybe even knowing you need it, plus even asking for it. They just give it to you out of the kindness of their heart. God's saving grace is free and it's unearned. As a matter of fact, it can't be repaid. 
Well, look at these points here with me. First of all, grace cannot coexist with guilt. Grace cannot coexist with guilt. What do I mean by that? Well, the very nature of grace alleviates guilt. Now, there's good guilt and there's bad guilt. (laughs) There's some guilt that we need to feel guilty because we sin. Um, But God does not say, I'm gracious and I give you salvation, but you know what? If you mess up one time, it's all over. (laughs) He doesn't say that. Why? Because it's grace that we're saved. By grace, we're saved. That would not be a gracious gift. That would be a qualified gift. That would be a gift with attachments. See, if you, if you give a gift with an attachment, if you say, here, I'm going to give you this, and here are the qualifications for me giving this to you. I'm going to give you this new car, but you can only drive it on Sunday and Saturday. If you drive it any other day, I'm going to come and take it back. You're like, well, that's kind of a weird gift, but okay. Depends what kind of car it is, right? I mean, but see, that would be qualified. Grace would not be grace, beloved, if somehow God would say, you know, I'll save you if you don't sin. I'll save you if you just stop sinning from this point on. That's not what he says. That's why the Bible says that he has totally forgiven our sin, past, present, future. Now, that's not a license for us to go out as believers and say, well, let's go party it up. You know, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Let's just go for it. We went through that when we went through the book of Romans, remember? That's a faulty idea of God's grace. That's presuming on God's grace. We don't do that. If grace were given and then later withheld at all, even to the smallest little bit because of sin, it would not be the grace taught about in Scripture because God's grace involves unmerited, undeserved, permanent forgiveness for our sins. Unmerited, undeserved, permanent forgiveness. And you know the other funny thing about grace is grace can only operate where there is sin, (laughs) That's the only place it can operate. Because if you don't have the need for forgiveness, there's no need for grace. That's why the first thing you do is you establish the unrighteous character of those who are not in Christ. You talk to them about their fallen nature. You talk to them about their sinfulness. You talk to them about their proclivity to sin. Just ask somebody, are you, do you think you're a good person? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty good. Really? Have you ever told a lie? Well, who hasn't? What does that make you? A person that tells lies? No, it makes you a liar. Have you ever taken anything, irrespective of its value, that's not yours? Well, no, I don't, I, I don't steal things. Even when you were little, well, maybe once. What's that make you? A thief. Some people say a stealer. (laughs) That's like, no, sorry, wrong word. A thief. And you can just go right through all the commands. And pretty soon the person's sitting there going, wow, I'm not that good after all, am I? And then what do you do? But you know what? That's why Christ came. 
to pay for your sins. Because obviously you're not perfect like you thought you were. So you have sin on your heart. Where's that sin going to go when you stand before a holy God? It's still going to be there unless you come to the cross. So grace can only operate where there is sin. Man can either can neither escape nor atone for their own sin. There's no answer for man's sin other than Christ. We're guilty, we're helpless, we're, we're steeped in our sin, and that's why God says, you know what, this penalty has to be punished. Romans 6.23. But he says there's a way to remove that punishment. There's a way to atone for that punishment. It's called the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why Christ came. That's why Christ came to be born. He came to be born so he could die. So he could secure our salvation. See, by his work on the cross, beloved, Christ fulfilled the demands of God's justice in every way. He took the penalty of our sin upon himself. When Christ hung on the cross, God the Father treated Jesus Christ as if he had committed every sin of every believer who ever would be. Even though he never committed one. He was perfect. The Bible says he became sin for us. He took upon himself the sin of all those who would put their faith and trust in Christ. And that's how God provided this provision of grace that we need for our salvation. When Jesus Christ became guilty of our sin, not his own because he was perfect. Remember, he was God. He lived a perfect life. There was not one little sin on his life until he hung on the cross. And then he became guilty for our sin, and the price was paid through his death. And once God sovereignly acts in grace to forgive a person's sin because they trusted in the work of Christ, that person is totally and forever free of guilt. They stand in grace. That's what Romans 5 talked about. All guilt is removed. Never to return again. God's gift of grace is that it's, it's, it's grace is God's gift that completely and permanently overrules guilt. What guilt is is a feeling. A lot of Christians are wrought with guilt. And I think they may understand it theologically or theoretically, but they don't understand it practically. What does that mean? It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you don't feel sorry for your sin. But you don't live in that guilty place because you realize that Christ came and he died for all of your sins, that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, not one. 
And a lot of times that happens, especially to believers, because they fail to separate the feelings of guilt that result from sin from the ultimate condemnation of the guilty. See, when you sin, you should feel guilty. But that guilty feeling shouldn't last forever. At some point, you need to go back to the cross and say, wait a minute, Christ died for that sin I just committed. Lord, I'm sorry. I was presumptuous in the way I acted. It was sinful. Forgive me. And he's going, yeah, yeah, it's already done. (laughs) There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We need to remind ourselves of this truth. A lot of people cannot accept the reality of forgiveness. They just can't. Sometimes it even works its way down in personal relationships. When we have personal relationships with someone. Maybe relationship blows up and we kind of both, yeah, okay, I forgive you, I forgive you. But usually one person doesn't forgive. You know, they have the idea of this, you know, I forgave him, but I'm never going to (laughs) forget. That's not true forgiveness, beloved. That's just not what the Bible describes as forgiveness. Because you still got a, a bone to pick with that person, whether you admit it or not. Sin not only produces feelings of guilt, but real guilt. For we are guilty of the sins that we commit, are we not? Yet the very guilt that Christ bore on the cross and that God's grace in Christ removes is that guilt. I mean, sometimes we have a hard time as believers understanding how God could be so gracious. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just walk away scratching my head going, why? Why, Lord? Why are you gracious to me? I mean, I let you down time and time again. I, you know, it's just over and over, whatever. And it's like, and yet he just dulls out grace. It's like, wow. I mean, it gives you a desire to live a more holy life. It gives you a desire not to presume on his grace, but to say, God, I don't want to do this anymore. Let's, let's try to rework this. See, the pain that follows sin is not the mark of condemnation or rejection by God. So many times that's what we believe. It's a reminder that we have sinned and that we should stop sinning in the future. You can't earn this kind of grace, you can never repay this kind of grace, you don't deserve this kind of grace. I mean, what greater motivation for becoming a Christian could an unbeliever have? What a a greater consolation could a believer have than to know that in Christ all sins, past, present, future, are forgiven forever, forever. In Christ, all the guilt, all the penalty are permanently removed. In him will stand totally guiltless, perfected, holy for the rest of eternity one day. Can you even imagine that? 
When God saves, he ultimately takes away all sin, all guilt, all punishment. That's what grace is. Well, secondly here, grace can not only coexist, cannot coexist with guilt, but grace cannot coexist with human obligation. This is a good one. Sometimes we bring our previous religion into our Christian life. You know, I grew up in the Catholic Church. I was an altar boy the whole nine yards. And a lot of you, the same. And you know what guilt is. <laughs> you know you know what the thumb of the church can do to you, right? And it puts you in a spot where you feel like, okay, I'm just this little worm and i got to pay God back. So how do I pay him back? Well, I go to Mass, go to Confession, try not to swear, do all these things. I mean, I used to be so guilty, I'd go to confession and make stuff up. I didn't know what to tell the priest. So I'm in confession, I'm lying to the priest. I mean, figure this out. I mean, what was I thinking? Forgive me, Father, for I, it's been six months since my last confession for us. And well, I cut, told a couple of lies. I uh, started a fire when I shouldn't have. I did this, did that, blah, 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 blah. Okay, well, go out and save Four Hail Marys and three Our Fathers. Roger. I go out there and kneel down. Five minutes, those prayers are done. I'm good to go. So I thought. What a mirage that is. What a warped way of thinking that somehow you can earn the grace of God. Somehow that you have to pay God back for his gift. See, grace is a free gift, beloved. It's not a loan. It's a free gift. Grace makes us totally indebted to God because the cost is so great we cannot repay it. That's why we need his grace. That's why we need his grace. We're so completely indebted, yet he says, you know what, you're forgiven. Of all your debt. I'm not holding it against you anymore. We can't pay for our salvation either before or after we are saved. And I'm afraid to tell you there's a lot of Christians in churches today that are trying to pay for it on this side of the cross. And I see the results. You know, they're they're burned out in ministry. They're they're doing everything that possibly could be done in the church, yet their family's falling apart. What's wrong with that picture? See, they're in this mentality where I just gotta pay God back. I gotta everything else comes second. See, that's a faulty way of thinking. If we were able at any time or in any way to earn God's forgiveness. It would be our due. We would earn it, and God would owe it to us. That's not how it works. God's grace is a free gift. The truth that we can't earn our salvation, beloved, is, is for many, bad news. When you tell unbelievers, you know, yeah, it's, it's a free gift. You just reach out and take it. Well, what's the catch? There's no catch. Salvation is a free gift. Well, what do I have to do? You don't have to do anything. It's totally of God. See, the moment we make our salvation based on something we do, 
whether it's say a little prayer or walk an aisle or raise a hand or whatever, what are you doing? You're taking God's salvation and you're making it man's salvation. In Ephesians, the Bible says that even before the foundations of the world, some of you are older, but you're not that old. (laughs) Before the foundations of the world, God set his love upon us. We weren't even around when God set us aside for his love. See, grace is good news. It's the greatest news in the world because it's made it unnecessary for us to have to pay for our salvation. God's abundant grace makes it unnecessary because Christ paid in full the price for our sin. 1 John 4.10 says, He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sin. We love Him only because He what? He first loved us. Sometimes I'll hear people give testimonies and I'm sure it's innocence or ignorance, one or the other. But they'll get up and they'll say, yeah, I can't believe when I found God (laughs) or I found Jesus. It's like, wait a minute. I didn't know he was lost. I think it's the other way around, pal. I think he found, you found, he found you, not not the other way around. Right? I mean, it's, it's... it's, it's such a, a simple thing, but so many times we, we tend to take credit for our own salvation. And it cannot coexist with human obligation because it's a free gift, not alone. And then the last thing here, the grace of God can not coexist with human merit. And that I don't want to belabor this point, but we kind of talked about this already. Even Isaiah chapter 64 says that our, our righteousness, anything we bring before God that we think is righteous, are like filthy rags. It's a filthy rag, something to be tossed aside. See, grace is not something that's offered to good people. That's why when somebody says, well, I would never go to the church, you know, it's full of hypocrites. It's like, well, yeah, come, come on, we need you know, use a couple more. I mean, you know, we're, we're all sinners. Who do we think we are? You know, we go out there to the lost world, we look down our righteous noses, and we say, oh, you know, those people of the world, we've got to stay away from them. That's not what Jesus said. He said, get out there, mix it up, be salt, be light. Show them why Christ has made a difference in your life. It's not based on human merit. It's based on God's gift of grace. A person's goodness in relationship to other people and certainly in relationship to God is not considered in God's grace. He doesn't say, well, this guy's better than that guy. I think I'll, it has nothing to do with it. That's why, you know, sometimes people will ask me. They'll say, you know, I have this brother-in-law or I have this relative or I have whatever. And boy, he's just been a rascal all of his life. And, you know, I don't know, somebody said that on his deathbed when he was in the hospital, his last breath was, you know, take me, Jesus, I forget, you know, whatever. Kind of a last-ditch effort of salvation. And they'll always say, that's probably not genuine, huh? I say, well, how do I know? I don't know. God does. Think of the thief on the cross. I mean, he wasn't some righteous guy. 
He was on the cross for a reason, right? Murderer, a thief. He was being executed for his crimes. And yet, in the dying breath, he says, hey, you know, hey, maybe you can remember me today in paradise. Yeah, it's done. Simple step of faith. He wasn't baptized. He didn't walk an aisle. He didn't take communion. He didn't go to a church. See, it's not by human merit that we can gain salvation. Merit like guilt and obligation have no part within grace. They just don't belong there. In Romans chapter 3, it says there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody's in the same boat. That's why Christ had to come. That's why Christ had to be born in human flesh so that he could go to the cross and literally die in our place for our sins. And if we're still trying to work for our salvation, that's like spitting on Jesus on the cross. That's like looking at Jesus on the cross and saying, yeah, well, you're not good enough. i gotta, I got to continue this work. You didn't secure it. That's what the Catholic Church does every time they have a Mass, by the way. They have an altar. We don't have an altar here because we, there's no need for one. Christ was the last and final sacrifice. But see, when you go to a Catholic Mass and you see the priest take the host and he reaches up, what's he doing? He's reaching up theoretically into heaven and he's pulling Christ out of heaven. And then he's sacrificing him once again for the sins of the people. That's what the priest does in a mass. That has no place in the life of a born-again Christian who's put their faith and trust on, in Christ's work on the cross. So I trust at this Christmas you'll realize that it's not just this little baby in a manger. (laughs) You know, it's not just the three kings of Orientar. But we can be thanks, have thanksgiving in our heart this Christmas for the gift of his grace. And that's what Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that you would uh, just bless the remainder of our day today. I pray for any here today who may not know you as their Lord and Savior. Father, maybe the words they heard are a little foreign to them, but Father, I pray that you would quicken their hearts to understand as only you can. I pray that if they're convicted of their sin, that they would turn to the only source of forgiveness that is available, that being the cross of Christ. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you that he was born of a virgin, that he did live some 30 years here on this life, in this earth, a perfect life, and yet went to a a cross willingly in our place to pay for our sins so that we one day would rejoin him in glory And Lord, it's that work of grace in our lives that most of us here have tasted, have experienced. Lord, remind us that it's an ongoing work. 
And Father, I just pray that we would live lives that are honoring to you each and every day. And Father, if, if there's any here who's yet to put their trust in you, I pray that they would do as the, the man in the New Testament, just cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. When that prayer is prayed from a sincere heart, that, that prayer will save the human soul because you're giving up on yourself and you're trusting the only one that deserves your trust, really, is Christ, God the Father. Pray for our meeting afterwards, Lord, in a few moments that you would just oversee that and, and pray. Thank you for your constant provision. Pray also for the fellowship time across the way and the food. We ask you to bless it to our bodies. And uh, we just uh, pray you dismiss us with your blessing now. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.